Okay, so shifting gears a little bit, um, one of the realms in which uh, bacteria are known and simultaneously not well known is in the realm of food. We'll be talking about one of the common ways we use bacteria in food in this episode of Short Stories of Bacteria. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Short Stories Bacteria. I am your host, Dr. K, and I would like to heartily welcome you back to the podcast where we learn all about the lifestyles of the tiny and infamous, the humble bacteria. If this is your first time, uh, allow, me be, allow me to be the first one to welcome you on board, and if you could like, share, and follow, I would really, really appreciate it. It would really help the show. You can also keep up to date with any changes in the show on our Instagram page, and that is at Science with Dr. K. That is Science with Dr. Underscore K. Um, now, lately, we've been on this sort of um, on this sort of ambiguous topic, which is the bacteria that we interact with in our everyday life. We've been we've been looking at a number of different ways that bacteria impact the day to day lives of humans, ranging from the compost that we use in the garden to the dogs with which we snuggle. And we've been playing with the uh, with a thought experiment of how could we go about enhancing our everyday lives by curating certain parts of our microbiome, or at least the bacteria with which we interact in our normal day to day lives. Now, last week during our spooky bacteria Halloween extravaganza palooza, I mentioned that we were going to talk a little bit this this week about how bacteria influence our food. And so without further ado, let us jump into that topic. Um, It turns out, and you may have gathered this already, it turns out that bacteria are very intimately involved with the food that we eat. We oftentimes, I think, have this general idea that when we are eating food, we're just, you know, eating food. Um, but pretty much always, whenever we're eating food, we are eating bacteria along with it. There are some there are some products in particular that quite famously are high in bacteria, and the one we're going to be talking about today is kombucha. So what is, what is kombucha actually, Dr. K? Fundamental question here. Um, kombucha, for the uninitiated, can be thought can be found. Excuse me, can be found at your local store. Probably, um, it's this sugary, uh, acidic kind of sour, sometimes kind of alcoholic drink um, that is derived from tea. And kombucha, actually, um, the concept of kombucha has been around for literal millennia. There are some reports of kombucha-style drinks clocking in China somewhere, somewhere around 220 BC. Um, It's a super tasty drink. It has some sourness. It has some sweetness, depending on how you prepare it. Um, And there are also some limited health benefits associated with drinking kombucha. In addition, there are some health benefits that can be a bit exaggerated. Um, But they're they're super high in antioxidants, which is cool. Um, They contain some good bacteria, as we'll see later on. Um, It also contains just a tiny bit of caffeine. So if you are trying to cut down on your caffeine intake, drinking some kombucha is a a pretty nice substitute. but Dr. K, you ask, perplexed, how does one go about making kombucha? How does one make kombucha, Dr. K? Well, it turns out um, there are actually only a couple of things that you really need in order to have a fully functional kombucha. Number one, you need a baseline substrate in which to grow your bacteria and mix with your sugar. That substrate will vary, um, but the most common one is some form of tea. The most common tea being black tea. 
So black tea, that's the most common substrate you use for kombucha. That being said, there are other types of tea that are also fun you could use here, um, including green tea, um, including oolong tea. Not every single type of tea is going to work. There are some teas that can actually negatively impact the bacteria that you're going to have in there, like tea Earl Grey hot. Um, but at least those big ones, black tea, green tea, oolong tea, those three, those will work just fine. Um, there are actually also some folks that will use other substrates as the basis for the tea. You'll hear people who use things like peppermint, who use things like sage, um, I don't know, oregano, I guess, maybe, um, things like this, um, and with varying success. But the general concept is you take some kind of tea, and then you, that's going to be your baseline substrate. Now, after you have your substrate, what you have to do is you have to have some form of carbon that can be digested by your bacterial brewers. And the most common source of the carbon in the case of kombucha is sucrose, which is just your common table sugar that is found in the sugar cane and found in the sugar beet. The amount of sugar that you use is actually going to vary depending on uh, how much fermentation you want, how sweet you want the kombucha. Typically when you're um, building your own kombucha, so you start with your, your tea substrates. So let's say we're talking about black tea. Actually, you know what? Oolong tea sounds better. You start with your oolong tea. Um, and the typical amount of sugar that you'll see is, in terms of ratios, usually clocks in at something like one cup per gallon of kombucha, which is about like 6% weight per volume. Um, that being said, the percentage can range anywhere from like 5 up to 15% weight per volume. So if you're making a gallon of kombucha and you really, really uh, like it sweet, you could drop it anywhere from say three quarters of a cup of sugar per gallon, that would be 4.7% sugar, all the way up to 2.4 cups of pure sugar per gallon. That's 15% sugar, depending on your taste. Now, once you boil your water and then you dissolve all that sugar, let's say that we're doing, I don't know, I'm feeling having a bit of a sweet tooth today. Let's say we're doing 2.4 cups of sugar per gallon here. So you dissolve your 2.4 uh, cups of sugar. Uh, and then what you're going to do is you're going to steep your tea in the sugared water. After you steep your tea in this sugared water, then you introduce this third and obviously my favorite component of the kombucha, and that is the microbes. The microbes that you're going to use um, to ferment kombucha are actually a combination. They're not just bacteria. They're a combination of bacteria and yeast. This combination of bacteria and yeast goes by a whole bunch of different names. Um, it can include symbiotic culture of bacteria and yeast, or SCOBY for short. Um, it also goes by the name T-fungus, um, the cellulosic pellicle. I shall call it consortium, which is another name that you can use. Um, when you add consortium to this sugared tea broth soup thing, which you have, after you do that, so you have your sugared tea broth, you add your consortium to the broth, cover that up with a super, 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 super clean cloth and rubber band, and then what's going to happen is the consortium is going to start fermenting or converting the sugar into things like acetic acid, which is just vinegar, and then ethanol, which is alcohol. This process, this process of fermentation takes, eh, at, at least at, at room temperature, it takes about like a week to a week and a half. Now, what's really, really cool is that as fermentation continues, and this is actually really, really cool because uh, in my biochemistry class that I teach, um, we're talking about, we just talked about fermentation this past week, which is really cool. What's really cool about this is that as the fermentation continues, the amount of sugar is going to decrease and the amount of acetic acid and ethanol is going to increase, sort of in the case of ethanol, but we'll talk about that later. But 
So if you want an extra sour kombucha, one that's high in vinegar, then you just have to let it ferment a little bit longer, with the longest I've seen clock in at like two weeks. If you want it to be sweeter, then just do like seven days, and then that should be just fine to get a little bit of extra sweet and a little bit of sour kombucha. Now, as that fermentation trundles along, the consortium makes this little crust at the top of the kombucha as the new bacteria um, are trying to gain access to oxygen. So they're going to go up to the top of this, this fermentation soup, I guess. If you scoop out that layer, right, with a little bit of that broth, you can use that then as a starter culture for your next kombucha, which is really, really cool. And this actually brings up this really, really important part if you are ever going to make kombucha, and that is the importance of sterility. See, the consortium is obviously isn't the only bacteria forward slash yeast that likes sugar water. Pretty much everything else within the micro, not everything, a decent chunk of bacteria and yeast in the microbe world loves it some sugar water. So if you want to make a kombucha that is healthy and not totally full of pathogenic bacteria, you have to be extra sterile. So that means you have to keep it in very sterile environments, in very sterile containers, whenever you're making a batch of kombucha. But assuming that you did all that and you did all the previous steps, you should have some really nice, pretty sweet, just a little bit of sour kombucha on hand. Now, in addition to this first fermentation step, um, a lot of folks will follow up the first fermentation step with a second fermentation step in a sealed, oxygen-free environment. This takes the form of, in a sterile way, of course, pouring the kombucha into a fermentation bottle and then just sealing them shut. And at that point, the consortium will continue to degrade those sugars that I mentioned earlier. But since it has no oxygen, it starts producing concentrated amounts of carbon dioxide. And that's going to actually carbonate the beverage. So a lot of kombuchas then have this carbon, natural carbonation that occurs in them. The second fermentation actually takes another seven days as well. Um, this is also at room temperature. And after you have these seven days of fermentation, then you'll have this delicious carbonated drink. After this, you can store the kombucha at 4C. That's just basically the fridge. And even then, after that, you can add a whole bunch of other things to the drink, anywhere from whipped cream to chia seeds, even to boba. Now, as always, however... Be extra careful. You're drinking live bacteria, and it is possible for your kombucha to be contaminated. So, like I said, be careful. Be super sterile if you're making your own, and keep an eye on how much bacteria and yeast is actually in your drink. Or, of course, you can just buy it from a store as well. But, wait, Dr. K, you say, scrabbling to write all this down? Well, I thank you greatly for this beautiful recipe you have provided. This is Short Stories of Bacteria with Dr. K. Not short stories of kombucha. What is happening to all the bacteria? What is happening to all the yeast during this fermentation process? Well, that is a very good question. And it's actually really, really cool. The microbiome of the kombucha, which is reflective of the microbiome of the consortium, is actually really complex. And it actually varies a lot depending, depending on where it's from, where it's made, what its environment is, stuff like that. But in general, there are two big, um, two big bins of microbes in the consortium. There's the yeast cells, and then there's the bacterial cells. And each of these, each of these general bins, contribute to the overall change in the flavor of the tea from just pure sugary tea to the carbonated, sugary, sour, alcoholic drink that we all know and love. So, what actually happens? in the kombucha that the bacteria and the yeast are doing. What's happening there? Well, uh, let us start off. Um, 
let us start off with the yeast. Like I said, there's actually a whole bunch of different types of yeast that are going to dominate kombucha depending on where it's from, depending on the environmental conditions where it's from. But the most common yeast is called Saccharomyces cerevisiae, which is um, one that we see here in the U.S. But in addition to uh, cerevisiae, there's several other types of yeast seen in kombucha as well. Um, and these range anywhere from Decora bruxellensis, I believe that's how you pronounce it, which is seen in New Zealand, uh, to Candida albicans, which is a really, really cool yeast, which we may talk about on another episode of the podcast, but that's seen in Japan. Um, but regardless of the strain, the point of the yeast, what they do in the kombucha is is always going to be the same. They have to break down that sucrose, right? Sucrose, that um, the table sugar that I mentioned earlier, what it's done, what happens to it is it's split by the yeast into two or more sugars. And these are called, I'm sorry, two more sugars, not two or more. There's just two of them. So they're called fructose and glucose. Now, both of these guys are further broken down by the yeast to ethanol and to carbon dioxide. And that's why, depending on when you pull the kombucha and the amount of and the amount of yeast that you put in there, there can be varying levels of ethanol present. And it can be more or less alcoholic. Now, wait a second. Dr. K, you ask, something isn't quite right. What do you mean? What do we mean when we say depending on when you pull your kombucha? Is there a time when the ethanol content is the highest? And this gets into the next type of organism in the consortium. And that, of course, is the bacteria. Now, as in the case of yeast, there are a bunch of different kinds of bacteria that are present in the kombucha. But there are two big players of bacteria in there, and they are acetic acid bacteria and so-called gluconic acid-producing bacteria. Some other kinds of lactobacillus can be found in high amounts in the kombucha, which is why um, some people will consider it a probiotic, because lactobacillus oftentimes is considered a probiotic. Um, but interestingly, even though the lactobacillus can be found in high levels in the kombucha, they aren't used to produce the drink itself, right? They don't actually make the components necessarily of the kombucha, like the key components of kombucha. That honor belongs to those two bacteria types that we just mentioned in those two. Um, that'd be the acetic acid bacteria and then the gluconic acid producing bacteria. Now, of those two, we are going to focus on the acetic acid producing bacteria because they relate a little bit better to the yeast conversation we just had. Now, as you'll recall, acetic acid is just another word for vinegar, and there are a lot of different types of bacteria that can produce vinegar. These are going to include acetobacter, gluconobacter, and others, but the main point of these acetic acid producing bacteria, and we call them AAB from now on, the main point of these AAB is to break down the ethanol that is being produced by the yeast. AABs are really, really good at latching onto things like ethanol and then converting it into vinegar. So as the yeast increases the amount of ethanol by digesting the fructose and glucose, by grabbing that sucrose, breaking it down to the fructose and glucose, and then digesting that fructose and glucose and making more of the ethanol, the AABs are then going to grab that ethanol and start converting it into that vinegar sour flavor. This brings down the amount of ethanol, and it also makes the drink super, super sour. This means then, in theory, this means then that there is a set point where you would have the most amount of ethanol and the lowest amount of vinegar. So if you really, if you really, really wanted to have a really alcoholic kombucha for whatever reason, or if 
for whatever reason, all you'd have to do is just alter the amount of yeast and bacteria, and that could decrease the rate of conversion of the ethanol into vinegar, and that would kick up the ethanol. Conversely, if you want to have a super, super sour version of kombucha, all you got to do is increase the amount of acetic acid producing bacteria, so that way we could really, really break down that ethanol, or convert that ethanol, excuse me, into vinegar really, really rapidly. So depending on the type of consortium you use, right, depending on when you pull your kombucha, you can alter and kind of cater the amount of ethanol, sugar, or vinegar in your drink, making it, making it just the way you like it. Um, okay, let's, let's wrap this up and let's get out of here. I thought it may, maybe I could squeeze two stories of food bacteria in here, but I guess we got a little, a little carried away with the kombucha. Um, We'll have to do more more on that later. But anyway, number one, kombucha is a lovely fizzy lifting drink that is that uses a consortium of bacteria and yeast in its synthesis. Number two, kombucha can technically be made at home, but it must be very well controlled and held in extremely sterile environments. Or you could always just buy some from the store. Number three, yeast contributes to a functional kombucha by breaking down the sugar, sucrose, and converting it into ethanol. And finally, number four, bacteria contribute to a functional kombucha by breaking down the ethanol into vinegar and giving kombucha that delightful sour flavor. It is such a cool, such a cool, cool instance um, of how bacteria and other microorganisms, they contribute to the flavor we're experiencing and how just, just tiny manipulations in them, having a little bit more of the yeast or a little bit more of the bacteria can lead to such, such different results in terms of taste. Next week... What we're going to talk about is is more. Is we're going to dive even more into how bacteria influence the taste that we have. Um, but like I said, we will talk more about that next week. But for now, that is all I have for you guys today. Thank you so much to each and every one of you who tuned in today. Hope you guys are all doing well. And I hope to see you all again next week on another episode of Short Stories Bacteria.